This is John O. Brennan, former director of the Central Intelligence Agency and author of Undaunted, My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad. And I cannot confirm or deny that I am talking to Trey Elling on Books on Pod. Hello, readers. Dennis McDougal is an author whose books include Dylan, the biography, Five Easy Decades, and the bestseller Privileged Son, which was the basis of the 2009 PBS American Experience documentary titled Inventing L.A. And his newest book is another good one called Operation White Rabbit, LSD, the DEA, and the Fate of the Acid King. Dennis, thank you for the time. Who is William Leonard Picard, and what made you want to write a book about him? William Leonard Picard is a 75-year-old biochemist, something of a child prodigy who grew up in the 50s and 60s in Georgia. He took Timothy Leary seriously, I think, during the 1960s when Leary told everyone to drop acid and drop out. And that was pretty much what Leonard, everyone calls him by his middle name, who knows him. That's pretty much what Leonard did. He was a Princeton freshman there on a full scholarship ride. One of the brightest young men in the United States as far as science was concerned, won several national awards. But by the time he got to Princeton, he was disillusioned with the country, with politics, with the war in Vietnam. And he took Leary seriously and dropped acid and then dropped out. He um, hit the road for the next 20 to 30 years. He was in and out of college towns all over the uh, United States, lived in communes, lived on his own. But the whole time he was studying biochemistry and more specifically psychedelic medicine, the science of LSD, psilocybin, mushrooms, mescaline, DMT, all those substances that we now recognize as hallucinogenic. His goal in all of this was to try to further Leary's gospel of tuning in and getting the general public to take the necessary chemicals that would expand their vision and make them understand that we are all one and all of the other platitudes that we have come to associate with the psychedelic movement. You mentioned that after he drops out of Princeton his freshman year, he is just kind of wandering somewhat aimlessly for the next 20 to 30 years, learning about the psychedelic drug process, the making of certain things, the acquiring of other things, how the government goes about trying to combat those who are responsible for making and distributing these mind-altering substances. And he was also getting in legal trouble here and there. He actually stayed pretty low-key in terms of that legal trouble for much of the 1980s, but unfortunately that changed in... 1988. What exactly happened in 1988 that really changed the course for Leonard Picard? Well, he had advanced by that point into the manufacture of of MDMA, which is more popularly known on the street as ecstasy. He had become something of an apprentice by that time 
to a very famous psychedelic biochemist named Alexander Shulgin. And Shulgin was also known, or is still known to this day, I guess, as the father of MDMA, not because he discovered it, but because he popularized it. And Leonard got into manufacturing MDMA, and by 1988, it had become a uh, Schedule One drug like LSD and cocaine and heroin. And Leonard got busted. That's the short version. The longer version is that he was living in a um, an apartment complex near Mountain View on the um, peninsula near Palo Alto in Silicon Valley. And his apparatus that was set up in a warehouse near the apartment complex was giving off a terrible odor. Someone, I think, characterized it as urine-soaked tires on fire. <laughs> the neighbors noticed, of course. They called the police. The police showed up, and Leonard was there and was very forthcoming when uh, the cops began questioning him. But he never, of course, admitted to manufacturing anything illicit and he was arrested and tried and found guilty of the illegal manufacture of drugs and was sent away for the next about four years, I believe. Did four years in a federal penitentiary mellow him out at all? Well, it seemed to. By the time the federal judge finally allowed him out, in 1992, she pointed out that he was pushing 50 years old and that it was getting a little late in life and that he ought to figure out what he was going to be doing with himself so that he wouldn't wind up back in steer again. And um, as soon as he got out, he made his way to the Buddhist center in um, San Francisco and apprenticed himself out as a junior monk at the Buddhist center and spent the next year or so reacclimating himself to the world as a repentant Buddhist who'd learned his lesson. So it appeared as though he had finally found his way and that He'd learned from being in and out of jail and or prison several times over the previous two decades that maybe bucking the law, whether he thought it was correct or not, was not the best way to proceed with his own life, that he could contribute more to humanity and to himself if he walked the line a little bit more straight and narrow. How did Picard end up studying at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government beginning in September of 1994? While he was in prison in Terminal Island, he became pen pals with a guy who had graduated from the Kennedy School and who later on joined the U.S. Attorney General's office as an advisor on the drugs and drug rehabilitation. 
And this fellow became something of a mentor to him. And he was the one who suggested to Leonard that he ought to apply. What Leonard really wanted to do was to go to medical school, but he didn't have the credits or the uh, formal academic background necessary to get into medical school, let alone, I mean, Harvard. But with the help of his mentor, he was able to apply and gain entrance to the Kennedy School, which is a diplomacy school, basically. It's the Kennedy School of Government, but it's pretty much seen as a training ground for diplomats, State Department, attaches, Defense Department personnel. And that's where he wound up in, I think it was 1994, maybe earlier, could have been 93. But anyway, somewhere in the early 90s, Leonard packed up his bags in San Francisco and made a beeline to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he um, settled in for the next two or three years as a fellow in the Kennedy School, earning a master's degree, I think, in 96 or 97. Despite the fact that he enrolls in Harvard, just a few months later, he is drawn to Purdue University in Indiana. Why? Well, I don't want to leave people with the impression that he came out of prison and had completely turned over a new leaf because that wasn't the case. I mean, Leonard never gave up the idea of psychedelics or the potential that psychedelics had for changing the world. So he continued to pursue psychedelic biochemistry on the side and paid close heed to the findings of Alexander Shulgin. But another of Shulgin's compatriots in the area of psychedelic discovery was a professor at Purdue named Dave Nichols. Dave was well-known among those in the psychedelic manufacture or creation field, if you will. Nichols was known for having come up with a uh, particularly clever and streamlined design for racing through the necessary steps to create a high-quality LSD. He was a professor first and foremost, but he was also broadly known as being interested in and writing in scientific journals about LSD and DMT and other psychedelic derivatives in the international world of psychedelic medicine. And, you know, Leonard was at Harvard, so he kept up on all of this stuff and ingratiated himself to Nichols, told him his own background to some degree, and Nichols befriended him and said, sure, why don't you drop by and we'll chat further. Leonard went to Purdue and sat in on some of Nichols' classes, befriended Nichols' chief chemist. He had a guy who ran the laboratory for him. And without Nichols' knowledge, Leonard went ahead and got into his laboratory and began to uh, manufacture his own supply of LSD without anybody's knowledge. Around the time that he established himself at Harvard, it 
really allowed him to lead this sort of double life, whereas by day he was a grad student, and then that eventually turns into something a little bit different at UCLA, but a very similar concept. But in that off time, he does become this guy who is responsible for creating a lot in the way of psychedelics, including LSD. And he continues to find ways to introduce himself to people to really help him push that cause. There are so many important characters in this book, but the second most crucial figure in this story is most certainly Gordon Todd Skinner, who is the man who went by many aliases, but primarily Todd Skinner. Gordon Todd Skinner was an Oklahoma aristocrat kid, I guess. I mean, if you can combine the two, being from Oklahoma and also being something of an aristocrat. He was a spoiled only son who grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. And by the mid 80s, when he was in high school, he had already began to dabble in various and sundry kinds of mind-altering drugs. He was into uh, ayahuasca for a while and DMT. He learned or tried to teach himself how to manufacture DMT from native grasses. He was a biochemist, not unlike Leonard, but without anywhere near the intelligence or the planning, I guess. Skinner differed from Leonard in that what he really wanted to do was get high and make everybody around him get high with him. He also differed from Leonard in that he was much more of a control freak than Leonard was. And he wanted to be the puppet master of all those around him. He also had much more of a a criminal frame of mind early on than Leonard. And essentially what he wound up becoming after he graduated from prep school and immediately flunked out of college, he became a dealer marijuana dealer, and then later on was busted for the sale and manufacture of other drugs. And he became something of a, a drug entrepreneur who used the family business, and the family business consisted of manufacturing springs. I know that sounds kind of strange, but when I first came across that, I thought, well, that's kind of odd. How can you make a fortune out of making springs? But springs are in everything that you can think of, or a lot of things anyway. And that's what they did. They manufactured all kinds of springs and made a fortune. And based on that fortune, Skinner was able to ply his craft. In fact, Skinner is the man who famously bought and reconfigured an Atlas missile silo outside of Wamigo, Kansas, and turned it into an LSD den. In what ways was Skinner involved in Picard's LSD-making business? Well, at that point, he wasn't. He didn't get involved until shortly before they moved out of Santa Fe. They met at a, I mean, it's hard to pin down because Picard says that they met at a psychedelic plant conference in San Francisco. And Skinner maintains that they met at a party that he threw for Sting, 
the rock singer Sting a couple of years later. At some point, they did meet, though, in the Bay Area, and they saw immediately the possibilities of a symbiotic relationship because Skinner wanted to make a lot of money and also wanted to manufacture or get his hands on the best LSD that he could find. And Picard also wanted to make money, although his idea was to use the money for purposes of expanding general knowledge of psychedelics and promoting the uh, best use of them as a medicine. He wanted to stage a conference at Harvard that would have cost several hundred thousand dollars that would get into the prospects of future drugs, particularly psychedelic drugs. And he, he needed money for that. Plus, he acquired a taste for the high life once he'd been involved at the Kennedy School and done a lot of traveling. So, you know, all of that required money and sales of psychedelics was a way of acquiring a lot of cash quickly. So they each had their agendas. And when the two of them met, they saw in each other the uh, possibility of partners who could really make this thing take off. And that's kind of where the partnership began. And eventually it came to a major collision with the law. Yeah, and unfortunately we don't have time to go through all the details from the late 90s, but there was an accident that Picard suffered that really affected him going forward. You get a really dark story involving Skinner and just how little he seemed to care about human life and numerous examples of him essentially messing with people's livelihoods for his own entertainment. But eventually... Picard decides to separate himself from Skinner in mid-July of 2000 after he has once again moved his lab from New Mexico all the way up to Kansas to a different missile silo that Skinner says that he has purchased for Picard. Why did Picard decide that he was finally done with Skinner in the summer of 2000? Well, he found out that Skinner was double-crossing him. I mean, why it took so long for him to figure it out Leave that to your own imagination. Picard was not dumb, but his desire to make this international seminar at the Kennedy School happen so that he could put forth his idea about creating and controlling future drugs was so overwhelming that he believed everything that Skinner told him because Skinner kept coming back to him over and over again with how he he was going to be able to foot the bill for this very expensive undertaking, this seminar. At one point, a year earlier, maybe longer than a year, come to think of it, he told Picard that he was close personal friends with and had been working for Warren Buffett. And rather than do the obvious checking to see whether or not Skinner was telling him the truth, Picard swallowed it hook, line, and sinker and was strung along then for the next 
year or so by Skinner saying, well, you know, Buffett has given me full reign to take the private corporate jet from the Caribbean to San Francisco. And I know Mrs. Buffett, she's a close personal friend. And Picard, for whatever reasons, believed all of this and believed that Buffett was going to underwrite his seminar. So he went along with everything that Skinner came up with, and that included stepping further and further and further into the trap that eventually brought him down when uh, the Drug Enforcement Administration arrested him. Before we get to that, Skinner does reach back out to Picard in late October, wanting to meet up, unbeknownst to Picard, Skinner does make the call while essentially sitting next to the DEA. Skinner is setting Picard up. Why did Skinner flip like that on Picard, a guy who had provided so much to him in such a short period of time? Skinner was saving his own skin. Skinner was in big trouble. He'd gone from one mess to another throughout his entire adult life. He got busted in New Jersey and in the Caribbean and in New Mexico and in Oklahoma. He was a drug dealer extraordinaire and was always one step ahead of the DEA. Well, the DEA had finally caught up with him and he saw the writing on the wall that he was going to wind up probably being sent away for a long time if he didn't pull a rabbit out of his hat. So he recognized that Picard not only had a prison track record, but that he was one of the few people in the world with the knowledge to manufacture a lot of high-grade LSD illicitly and under the radar, and he saw that he was a big fish that the DEA probably would like to bag, so he offered him up. He literally picked up the phone and with his attorney paid a visit to the DEA in Washington, D.C., and said, look, we've got this guy. He's making LSD, and we can hand him to you on a silver platter. All we're asking is total immunity for Skinner. And the DEA jumped at the chance and gave Skinner everything that he asked so that they could arrest Picard and send him away forever. So that sets up the events around November 6th and 7th of 2000 and it around Wamego, Kansas. And we're not spoiling this for anybody. This is literally how you start the book off. And it is something that reads straight out of a script for Breaking Bad. But what exactly oh, yeah. happened on November 6th and 7th, 2000? Well, <laughs> Picard and his sidekick, a guy named Apperson, who was pretty much a guy who showed up whenever he needed to break down his lab. He was kind of a scientific muscle, right? Exactly. Nicely put. Thank you. (laughs) You're quite welcome. (laughs) Anyway, he was his go-to guy when it came to breaking down and putting up the lab. The two of them drove to um, Wamigo, and they were supposed to meet Skinner there at the uh, Atlas uh, missile silo, and they were going to load up the 
lab equipment and cart it away to a, a new location. So they showed up and Skinner wasn't there and there was a whole series of back and forth between Skinner and Picard by telephone and missed calls and Skinner was with the DEA at the whole time setting this all up, setting everything in motion. And ultimately, Picard and Apperson showed up at the silo and loaded up all of the equipment themselves because Skinner never did make an appearance. And they started driving away and didn't get more than a few miles before the uh, Kansas Highway Patrol pulled them over and arrested them, or at least arrested Apperson. They went to arrest Picard, but you know, Picard, in addition to being a Buddhist, Picard was and is a vegetarian, doesn't drink coffee, doesn't drink alcohol, and he's a marathon runner. He runs every day to this day. So the highway patrol and the police and the DEA agents who were right behind them all took out after Picard and literally ran into the night and Picard uh, outpaced them. It looked like he was going to get away. And in fact, he did overnight. He spent the night in a farmer's barn about five miles away near Manhattan, Kansas. And the next day, the farmer found him sitting in the uh, cab of an old truck in his barn and called the police and they showed up and chased him again, but this time they ran him down, arrested him, and carted him off to jail in nearby Topeka, Kansas. Picard and Apperson end up standing trial more than two years later. There's some hijinks regarding the trial that people can check out the book Operation White Rabbit to learn more about. Eventually they are found guilty. Picard is sentenced to, I believe, two life terms in prison, served concurrently, may have been some additional time added to that. All the while, Skinner is roaming free because he does have immunity, but inevitably, once you read this book and just read about the type of person that he is, he kind of exhausts the goodwill that he has with the DEA. When, how, and why did Skinner's luck finally run out with the law? Skinner was, if you can be an, a psychedelic addict, I guess you would say that's what he was, but he could not keep his hands off of psychedelics or drugs in general. And he was inexhaustible when it came to playing the crazy scientist. He injected himself and everybody else with whatever he came up with in his laboratory. Without going into great detail, his girlfriend and then later his wife developed a relationship with a young guy and Skinner found out about it, got jealous and tied this kid up, drugged him, shot him up with syringes full of God knows what all, including injecting his genitalia and eventually left him on the side of the road near Galveston, Texas, to die. And the kid survived, was picked up by the police, was nursed back to health, 
and Skinner was arrested and charged with attempted murder and mayhem and several other things, kidnapping, and was tried, convicted, and is now doing essentially, I think he got like 60 or 65 years, but at any rate, he's in prison for a long, long time, if not for life, in uh, Oklahoma as a direct result of this last little event that he oversaw. So your research and preparation for this book included speaking at length with Picard in prison, and you had the book completed July of this year. Why did you end up having to write a postscript after July 24th, 2020? Well, you know, the simple answer is I had to write a postscript because Picard, who had been consigned to prison for two life sentences plus 20 years, and the big joke was the 20 years was to cover the extra time that he would get in his second life as a Buddhist. (laughs) But he managed to get a pardon, or rather get his sentence ended because of a compassionate release handed down from a federal judge in July. And within 24 hours, much to his surprise and that of everybody else who knew him and knew anything about him, he was walking out of prison. And I'm happy to report that Leonard is now working as a um, paralegal for a law firm in Santa Fe, New Mexico, working for indigent Indians and others on a pro bono basis. And he's doing quite well. He's reacquainted himself with his children. I guess the thing that surprises me the most about Leonard is that you would think that somebody who spent the last 20 years in prison would be bitter and angry and seeking revenge. And he has none of that going on. I mean, he's just happy as can be because he's out and he's trying to spread what he learned from the, uh, very humbling experience of hanging out in a federal prison for 20 years to the broader public. And he's becoming a really good addition to the culture. Final question, Dennis. Do you think Mm -hmm. Picard will ever cook LSD again? Probably not. Okay. Probably not. I think that Leonard... Leonard's one of those people who makes lists of things to do. And once he's done them, once he has mastered them, he moves on to something else. In fact, I see that right now with this paralegal business. Who would have thought that he'd roll out of prison and immediately take a job as a paralegal? He's finding it very satisfying. I wouldn't be at all surprised knowing him that at 75, you might see Leonard wind up enrolling in law school someplace. He's Hmm. that kind of a guy. Dennis McDougall is an author whose books include Dylan, the biography, Five Easy Decades, and the bestseller Privileged Son, which was the basis of the 2009 PBS American Experience documentary titled Inventing L.A. And his newest book is another good one called Operation White Rabbit, LSD, the DEA, 
and the fate of the Acid King. Dennis, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this very enjoyable book. Thank you, Trey. This has been a great experience. And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can hear all of our episodes at BooksOnPod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.